Blog Talk Radio. Take it down. For the non-gate, oh, it's all about. Got some girls, some new rap. You know, you know, I'm running for the fuck, get the fuck, man, I'm loud, I'm a drunk. Oh, we drunk. Oh, hip hop town, hip hop town, this is big town.
we have to confront at some point in terms of understanding the kind of um, devastation society society is witnessing witnessing currently. Uh, one of the things when we talk about capitalism, we cannot talk about capitalism without talking about the innate uh, desire for conquest. So you can sort of say that you know, when you talk about capitalism, you know, conquest is sort of the DNA of capitalism. In fact, one of the things it does is negate the possibility in terms of cooperation. This whole notion that you take what you want is pretty much part and parcel of how capitalism works. And in fact, part of the problem in terms of, probably the biggest part of the problem in terms of in the world. But in any event, Brother Africa, I want you to check this out. I hope this will provide some clarity in terms of the point that I'm making here. Now, Michael Hudson stated, empires often follow the course of a Greek tragedy, bringing about precisely the fate they sought to avoid, that is, shooting themselves in the foot. This propensity to inflict self-harm has long been evident in the course of Western history's resistance to distinguish the benefits of cooperation versus conquest. Conquest, an ideology favored by Western elites, has its origin in a notion might makes right. Starting with the attacks on the Catholic Church, at least propagated the notion the church influence undermined the authority of the wealthy and as such must be brought under authority of wealthy elites. Authority of wealthy elites manifested throughout Western states in turn. Skirmishes but soon gave way to wars. While these wars were fought asymmetrically, that is, conflict not rising to the level of war, strategies employed were quite provocative. For example, Francis Drake, English explorer, was still halfway around the world for the express purpose of raiding Spanish colonists in South America. King Henry VIII, between 1509 and 1547, will authorize England merchant fleet to capture and resell foreign merchant ships. Known as privateers, we consider pirates. Their actions were not just condoned but emulated by leaders. Queen Elizabeth seized gold from dark Spanish ships, and upon learning the gold belonged to Italians, insisted that illegally stolen gold was a loan. These, these kinds of inequities, along with religious conflict, Colonial territory disputes and commercial plunder exacerbated the drive for conquest, culminating in war. In fact, the biggest war the world has ever seen. Called the Thirty Years' War, numerous Western states were involved in war for 30 years in an attempt to jerk their influence. Starting in 1618 as a religious war, by the end of its conclusion, over 8 million people dead, with Germany losing half its population. Were there any lessons learned from the pursuit of conquest? Not exactly. Instead, conquest would take a different form, more global in scope, where states, culture, and ethnic populations would be subjected to exploitation, making conquest easier to attain. Among strategies used to further conquest were geopolitics. Now, geopolitics coined in the early 20th century demise use of knowledge, detailing the attributes of non-Western states' resources would be lucrative, providing Western states not get in each other's way in pursuit of raw, material, raw materials from non-Western states. Geopolitics extrapolates 225 years of war conducted by the U.S. has demonstrated the cost associated with war is high. And indeed, a new paradigm is needed to minimize costs in securing Western economic and political objectives. Western objectives could be achieved by utilizing asymmetric strategies where conquest could be achieved relatively peacefully and the, and the obstacles that prevent Western uh, cooperation minimized. The strategy was to sell bread and wood Accords to 44 nations as a panacea to facilitate trade. The conference essentially created the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. These banks would serve as a source of liquidity for Western investment and barring if all else fails. Ironically, the conference excluded most African and Asian states. The racialized strategy of the conference and the intended targets of international finance were clear. 
Resources needed by Western states to ensure economic potential were made available, but availability of economic resources to the Global South will come with a price. Among those disadvantages is the inability of the Global South to determine price of its commodities, exchange rates, or, or setting the value of their currencies. The presence of Egypt, Ethiopia, South Africa, and Liberia at the conference should not lead us to believe the motives of Bretton Woods were altruistic. Now, even though the aforementioned strategy emulated the legacy of conquest, it did not eliminate the, the move toward conquest. American interest dictates the supremacy of all things economic, critical, and social. As such, the free ride afforded America by mandating Western central banks purchase dollars for trade and investment has subsidized the U.S. economy at the expense of European economic growth. Consequently, European investors have been targeting American assets, we're talking about land, property, and businesses, by acquiring larger shares in American securities, while simultaneously limiting access to European assets for American investors. Avenues to achieve this feat often entails currency manipulation by European investment dividends from Treasury of U.S. Treasury investments are used to keep interest rates in Europe artificially low to facilitate domestic consumption of European assets. Now, resistance to conquest did not end with Europe. While the fact both German and French leaders have been vocal, uh, Europe should decouple from U.S. because of economic disadvantages for Europe. The more definitive opposition to be, to to being to <coughs> to being conquered as, as manifest in the global South. In fact, resistance to being conquered by the U.S. is axiomatic and in full display among some states. Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Eritrea are a few examples. However, if we just oppose Russia and China's stance against being conquered, we can get a stronger sense of, of the disrepute and negative feelings and attempts by U.S. to undermine others' economy, economic development. In the case of China, uh, China's pushback is evident. China has been pursuing digital currency, which constitute a direct threat to the U.S. dollar in three tangible ways. One, it reduces transaction costs while minimizing fraud. Uh, mysterious bank fees and manipulation of, of financial accounts is eliminated. Secondly, limits oversight of foreign financial institutions like SWIFT system, which empowers G10 central banks to monitor transactions. Also, it makes Western sanctions impossible to carry out. And thirdly, digital currency is supported by most Asian, African, and Latin American states. Even if Western central bankers oppose digital currencies by buying more dollars, it could not stop the process by sheer consumer numbers. Now, if we factor in Russia's resistance to, to conquest, it's even more profound. Currently, in the process of liquidating all dollars from its sovereign wealth fund, this measure is reinforced by Russia's using its own currency for trade. This means the value of dollars in circulation will be negatively will be negatively affected, vastly impacting the U.S. economy. While $31 trillion national debt and balance of trade deficit in part affected by the U.S. sanctions, the reduction of dollars will not only contribute to U.S. debt, but a rising inflationary rate currently at 8.5%. Inflationary lows is key to economic stability. Anything that contributes to high inflation will only worsen unemployment, homelessness, and the inability to afford food. Had the history of the West been one of cooperation from lessons learned instead of conquest, such problems could have been remediated. Conquest in his conquest in his in his winter takes off disposition as doomed society making the unlikely chaos, turmoil, and death inevitable. This we cannot forget. And I'll close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Hakeith. Father and Brother Hakeith, 
Now we'd like to welcome Brother Anthony. Welcome, Brother Anthony, to Africa on the Moon. Thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Our revolutionary greetings to you, uh, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony, and following Brother Anthony. Anthony, we are bringing our Brother Moses, and we would like to welcome him as well to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Moses. And greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the illustrious panelists. My name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during the government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that my faith tongue is its messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And we don't reverse correct verdicts. Um, I'm pro-choice, and I vote. Women hold up half the sky for the Equal Rights Amendment, ERA, yes. And so the struggle continues, and uh, I just want to say that on this one week before May Day, um, they say plant your corn early. But anyway, I want to say Mao Zedong and the picture in Tiananmen Square He's worthy of every inch of that picture. He earned it with his works. And um, there's only there's only finite problems on earth, ultimately. Uh, and Mao was able to tackle a great deal of them, just like Einstein was able to tackle in his field. Scientists and revolutionaries um, achieve work and make works. And, uh, and if we study their works, we can achieve things as great as them, hopefully. And um, anyway, I just thank you for allowing me to be on the show. Thank you, Brother Moses. It's from Brother Moses. I do believe you have the correct number. We can go to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Good evening, uh, Brother Africa, to the fellow panelists and our listening audience. Thank you so much for allowing me to be on this evening's show. Thank you so much. And uh, when we talk about organizing and where people get their information, we have to remember that we have to direct our youth by telling them stay away from trouble and direct them whether we're their parents, uh, whether we're a teacher, whether we're a counselor. It's our responsibility to assist the youth in making proper decisions. And I stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people, um, right now with the people of Afghanistan, uh, with the people of Yemen. And uh, I am hoping that uh, this issue with Ukraine will come to uh, some type of legitimate peace talk to stop all of this uh, aggression and social imperialism. Thank you so much. 
for having me this evening. Welcome. Thank you, Sister Noah, for being a participant on today's program. To our listening audience, this is the voice of Africa, Brother Africa. What we're going to do right now, we're going to pause for the calls, and when we come back, we'd like to invite you as well to join us and share with us as we discuss what's going on in your world and the community. We're going to take our rubber station break right now, and we'll be right back. This is Africa on the Move.
if you would like to make your comments during this segment of what's going on in your world and the community, we actually please hit one so we can acknowledge your last four numbers if you'd like to make a comment. So we can get started with our party. I go to Brother Haki and ask him what's going on in his world and the community. To make a show, Brother Haki. Well, Brother Africa, oftentimes, you know, uh, people engage in all kinds of uh, uh, endeavors with good intentions, uh, you know, uh, but sometimes good intentions is not enough. That We have to have a firm understanding in terms of the uh, social economic realities that uh, people are confronted with in society and how those social economic realities impact on the way people behave, the way people think, and the way people act. But in any event, uh, I ran across this very interesting article. It is about uh, Professor Joe Bowler. She heads the math department at Stanford University. Now, she's led a, a California project that would make math less rigorous in order to boost equity in gifted classes. Now, Dr. Jelani Nelson, an African computer science professor, he opposes the move. Now, certainly this strategy of making math less rigorous to increase equity you know, in these classes is laudable but it's problematic for three reasons. One, by making math less rigorous, it ill-prepares students, all students, for the future challenges. Secondly, uh, by making math less uh, rigorous, it, uh, it does something to address systematic inequality in financing education. Any discriminatory formulas for funding schools would ensure access to latest textbooks and technology, but also ensure salaries that are competitive with the, with the private sector, attracting the most motivated instructors. And thirdly, you know, by, by making math less uh, rigorous, uh, it does something to address the social economic institutions that discourage African students' interest in STEM classes, STEM being science, technology, uh, engineering, and math. Nor does it address a historical legacy of socialization specifically designed to undermine the inquisitiveness of African children, which is key to future academic performance. Now, at the heart of Dr. Bowler's initiative is the misguided assumption, assumption learning is a function of genetics. Now, the debate of the nurture versus nature is key. Now, any correlation between social economics and education outcome is instructive. While economics limits stress on children, increasing the possibility of substantial educational achievement, limited economics does not negate educational achievement. Lack of economics could be offset by sharing meager economics among the community, and in the process, create conditions imitations of the children. The prime example is the, the formal Ansar Allah community in Brooklyn, New York. This is a community of, 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 of Muslims, and it was, it was self-contained. Uh, it was independent. Uh, it was, you know, they controlled every aspect of that community. Uh, it was like, in essence, it was a neighborhood. But what, what they succeeded doing in terms of creating conditions in which those kids, you know, uh, benefited, you know, uh, uh, across the board in terms of, you know, their own, you know, their own, you know, their own individual growth. So as a consequence, when you talk to those children, when you, when you question those children, when you just observe those children, they kind of discipline, they kind of uh, self-esteem, uh, they kind of uh, can-do attitude, which was very much part of their of, of their being. And so, you, when you talk to them and, and when you engage in discourse, I mean, there was no fidgeting around. I mean, they actually look at you directly in the eye and they respond to the question very, very intelligently. And this was across the board. We're talking about kids as young as two years of age. And so clearly, the inside new. A lot of community made it, uh, you know, set a very good, created condition to make it possible for those kids to excel academically, uh, you know, uh, in schools. 
unfortunately, that uh, anti-law community was destroyed because of the effectiveness in terms of being able to create kind of a community to produce kids who are more very, very motivated, kids who are convinced, you know, that it's their, their uh, uh, it, it is their uh, obligation to excel, to excel academically. Uh, of course, the state understood that represents a, a, a fundamental threat in terms of, you know, uh, how business is done here in America. So clearly, we have to create those conditions in the community to create the best for our children, but it takes us first and foremost understanding what those conditions are to counteract those conditions to make sure that our, our, we empower our kids to be able to emotionally and psychologically to resist the, the, the socialization, negative socialization uh, put here, you know, you know by, by the ruling, ruling elites. Now, one of the things I want to point out about the Africa, I think, is very, very important because often people say, well, you know, well, what's... I don't understand what the problem is. You know, there are other people that come from around the world. They do well in school. Why, why Africans born in America can't do well in school? Well, it's very, very simple, very, very simple reason. You know, one of the things is that, you know, when, the first thing they did when they brought us here was to destroy our language, destroy our culture. So in other words, what they did, they managed to create a facsimile in terms of what it is to be white. We are perceived as somehow, quote, unquote, American, but except we don't have all the, the benefits in terms of being American. So these people were in a position to actually determine or to shape our perceptions in terms of not only how we see ourselves, but how we see the world. Now, if we had had our own language and culture, that would have served as a buffer. To, so regardless of how much the racism is in society, if we got our own language and culture, then we have those things that, you know, that, that, um, that, um, that uh, um, uh, viscerally uh, empowers us to, to reject those kind of messages which are antithetical and in opposition to our own self-interest. So this is why it explains why. So you got brothers and sisters come from around the world, or particularly from, from the continent, who speak their own language, their own cultures. So no matter what you say about them, they understand precisely who they are. In the context of Americans born in, Amer- Africans born in America, we don't have a concept of who we are. We speak only English. Most of, I mean, those of us are indigenous to, to you know, born in America. We speak only English. We see things through the English lens, and so therefore, they, what the kind of conditioning, social conditioning that they that they create using the media, education system, and so on, has a very direct impact in terms of how we see ourselves and how we see the world. We don't have the benefit in terms of language and culture. So this is why it's important for us to create the conditions to protect our children psychologically, emotionally, and intellectually uh, by creating those kind of conditions in the community. Which, which fortifies, which protects, which strengthens our kids in terms of understanding who they are and, and, the, and their capability. We have to do that. Nobody's going to do that for us. In fact, one of the problems is that when you start talking about in terms of true empowerment of African children, the people who oppose the most should be liberal white folks. And you ask yourself, now, women, these liberal white folks, they're supposed to be about, you know, always wholesome, all that's good, all that's progressive. It doesn't work. Racism doesn't simply, there's no dividing line between liberal whites and conservative conservative whites. The racism is probable whether you're talking about a liberal white person or a conservative white person. And so in that context, you understand that, you know, one of the things is that, you know, uh, there is no real support in terms of those things that truly empower African children. So it's incumbent upon the community. That's not a national sentiment. That's a realistic sentiment in terms of the challenges that we face in the society and understanding, you know, that even though we will lack people, you know, just based upon fairness, uh, to, 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 to get on board in terms of trying to, 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 to eliminate these conditions with adverse impact and the, the overall well-being, particularly psychological well-being of African people. We would like to have that come about, but the reality is it doesn't. 
because there's a certain amount of um, benefits in terms of embracing racism in society. And we can no longer deceive ourselves in thinking that there's a distinction between liberal whites and conservative whites. Granted, there are some liberal whites who are very progressive, who are very revolutionary. That is, a norm, that is the exception, not the norm. So, so my point is that, you know, and I know people say, well, you, Brother Africa, Brother Haki, you know, you're being, that's, that's nationalism. No, I'm not espousing nationalism. I'm espousing the reality in terms of, you know, how things exist in society. And I give you numerous examples in terms of what I'm talking about, but for, for purposes of, of time and respect for the panelists, I'm not going to do that. But at some point later on, I'm going to come back to this, this theme and, and sort of elucidate in terms of why I'm saying what I'm saying. But I'll close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we'll move to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world and the community? Okay, uh, several things. Uh, one, um, uh, let's see, the British um, royal family was supposed to, um, is celebrating the Jubilee of uh, Queen Elizabeth II's uh, reign in, uh, over the British Empire, which is uh, approaching 75 years, 70 years, I think, yeah, 70 years. And, uh, and they postponed a trip they were going to make Grenada, to, uh, to, to Grenada to celebrate uh, the, uh, you know, her reign mainly because they wanted to avoid an incident which occurred in Jamaica when representatives of the British royal family visited there. There were demonstrations calling for reparations from Britain and uh, to, pre- uh, to prevent a similar incident from occurring in Grenada, uh, they postponed the trip. And uh, this was uh, from an article uh, I read online, and uh, and uh, it seems as if uh, the resistance to British domination in the Caribbean is intensifying. However, uh, uh, Leslie has kept being quiet so as not to destroy to detract from uh, the Russia-Ukrainian conflict. Uh, And and also, the resistance to to imperialist domination is rising uh, throughout the African diaspora. Uh, For example, there are unionization efforts going on uh, in various parts of the U.S., inclu- even with major uh, multinational corporations like Amazon. So uh, the resistance is intensifying. Uh, you know, what it takes is uh, more effective organization of the masses of the workers. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, we now bring in our Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Well, you know, there was a um, um, 
I think it came on at six o'clock this this evening in Richmond. There was a was it is it Starbucks? What is it? Who who was somebody? One of the unions down there, um, one of the service industries, uh, had a, a union a union um, approval down there, and uh, they're having a rally. I think uh, Bernie Sanders is in town, and it's live over the web Zoom Zoom. I had it on for a little while. It was like a country music festival to be. But uh, anyway, uh, that's something that's going on. Uh, I think that's, uh, that's the working class getting organized. Uh, they were singing union songs, the union, unions. Uh, and so uh, I think this consciousness is being built. Um, I just want to say, you know, again, about Mao Zedong thought. Um, he pointed out that there was such thing as Soviet social imperialism, and you know he he was a scientist. He wasn't just uh, some kind of out of all party line or something. But he he looked at reality and, and called it like he saw it. And um, uh, there was Khrushchev's phony communism and his historical lesson to the world's people, which came out in the sixties. And of course, the Soviet Union did crash in the nineties. Uh, and so, you know, I think you know we have to we have to recognize what socialism is, what communism is, and and know for ourselves what is what is real and what is not real. Uh, we, right now, we got imperialist powers contending and colluding for fears of influence, just like they always did throughout history, uh, throughout the history of capitalism, anyway, and imperialism, uh, and. Uh, you know that's what's going on in terms of uh, uh, Ukraine and and and, uh, and and Russia and uh, all the other wars are, are they're, they're bound for the world is divided up and the only way the only way to advance uh, one's interest is to to challenge the division as at the status quo and uh, and so. You know, we have to not become cannon fodder for these imperialists. We have to have an agenda, a socialist, a communist agenda, and our will of our own. And we, we can't just be be uh, subject to the whims of, of of the imperialist powers. And I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Next, we'll go to our sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, what's going on? What's going on in your world and the community? Well, well, good evening, uh, Brother Africa and fellow panelists and listening audience. How are you this evening? Uh, um, how are you this evening? And I uh, wanted to concur with Brother uh, Moses that in 1959, Khrushchev, you know, really was about uh, revisionism and undermining the uh, Russian Communist Party. And uh, many things happened during that time. And, of course, we saw the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. What concerns me most that with the collapse of the Soviet Union, it should have been the elimination of NATO because NATO's purpose was to protect the U.S. from the Soviet Union. 
So we see this incredible expansionism in Europe. We're not really aware of what's going on. We do know that uh, Russia was interested in uh, two regions in the Ukraine where the folks had wanted to reunite with Russia. Uh, In 2014, we know a legitimate election occurred, but it was overturned uh, by U.S. imperialist forces, and we ended up with what we see now, Zelensky. So I don't know much of what's going on, but I do know that uh, it is a horrible thing for, uh, for the world. And uh, this uh, military expansionism is a problem for all of humanity. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. And your listening audience, this is Africa on the Move. We're discussing what's going on in your world and in the community. This is 24th day of April 2022. And thing tonight is Africa in the West Western Europe burden. We'll discuss that later on. But right now we're gonna take a quick uh representative break and when we come back we will continue to discuss what's going on in our world, which is your world and the community. <laughs>
wearing chains, living in pain. Today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by a noose, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be strong to last through my journey. Yeah, to last through my journey. When we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. We must prepare and learn how to care, but soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be to know. That I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 made it through my journey, made it through my journey, Pellerino. A bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia. A scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights, pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, 
and all the Pelorinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be, to know that I've been here, and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 yeah. If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer. To give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do, because Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. People of all countries, of every race, and creed. We need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed. Plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom, needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. Thank you. 
we like to welcome you back to Africa on the Moon. Well, our sister Lucy Murphy singing Palestine, the our freedom. So do we. We all need our freedom. If one is oppressed, we all oppressed. So let's get on down this freedom road and make sure it happen. happen for all mankind. Before we left, we were talking about what's going on in our world community. And I'd like to just raise this question with my panelists and, of course, you, the listening audience. You're always welcome to join in and share your views, your perspectives. But dial 323-679-0841. You know, you can tell black about a system based upon how it its government treats its people. If you rain crawl, if you were a official um, policeman or officer, you ran across any young man who may have get a bag of chips out of a grocery store, how will you conduct yourself in terms of trying to show the correctness and use this as a teachable moment for that particular young youth? We're going to leave that scenario open to the panelists and see what they have to say about this. Start out with you first, Brother Haki. How would you conduct your affair if you ran across such a situation? Well, I think one of the things, you know, I wouldn't do, Brother Africa, I wouldn't destroy that young man's life, you know, potentially destroy a young man's life over a bag of potato chips. That I wouldn't do. My position is, is, is more one uh, in which a teachable moment, as you alluded to, and that is to, you know, you know, young man, you know, confront a young man. Young man, do you realize what you did is wrong? You know, that you, you don't take what doesn't belong to you. I mean, it's just a fundamental understanding in terms of, you know, uh, in terms of morals. Uh, you simply don't do that. I understand you may be hungry. I think it may be a situation of desperation. But why not at least go to the owner's store and ask him to listen, sir, I'm, you know, I'm destitute. You know, my you know, my parents are struggling, you know, I don't they don't have, you know, extra money to give to me. So I'm really hungry. Could I perhaps have a bag of potato chips? You might be respo- surprised to respond to the or the storekeeper. They might actually, you know, give you lots of potato chips in terms of because of your honesty. Oh, but you would never know that if you don't at least engage people. So the question is so I think that that becomes a, a teachable moment. I think also I think, you know, if I I come from the, the assumption or the presumption, you know, that, uh, you know, that uh, if I'm in a, in, a, in, in, in an impoverished neighborhood, I'm in a poor neighborhood, and a child, say, steals a bag of potato chips, and my, my assumption is based upon the poverty around, that they are surrounded by, the assumption being that uh, uh, they, they come up in, a, in an environment which is totally immoral. Now, if I come from that kind of perspective, then, of course, my, 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 uh, my approach to the young man would probably be quite different. I'm more apt to see that young man as a as a as a criminal, as a thug, and I'm I'm more likely to disregard the social <clears throat> the social conditions that contribute to the kind of desperation this young man obviously is experiencing. So I think that I think, but any you know, but like you know, but but any thinking police officer who come across a situation, and there have been some who actually come out of pocket and say, "Listen, what you did was wrong." Uh, please don't do that again because I don't want you to end up in trouble. But here, here's, here's 50 cents and 75 cents for the potato chips. 
you go pay for it, you know what I mean, and continue to talk to him as you, as you leave in terms of why, is, 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 you know, his, the, the action that he took is not in his best long-term interest. I think that is a more humane thing to do, but the only, but that more humane approach in terms of dealing with, with the kids comes from an understanding of the sociological realities that impact a lot of kids, particularly in poor neighborhoods. And also my understanding in terms of that we do have a system in place which is diametrically opposed to the interests of poor children, and specifically African children. And so therefore it's not in my best interest to sort of to to reinforce a system uh, that's diametrically opposed to the interests of our children, you know, by actually uh, you know, arresting this child and making and this child end up with a record who's destroyed for the rest of his life, his or her life. So clearly, Brother Africa, I think um, I, I think I would like to like to believe that uh, you know that that uh, most officers, police officers, would, would would understand the nature of the situation and, and and make it a teachable moment as opposed to simply defining the young man or young woman as 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 a criminal or a thug and vilifying that individual um, or complicating uh, that that male that male or female's life uh, for the rest of their life. And I will close with that. Thank you, Brother Hackey. Brother Anthony, talk to us. Yes. Um, my response would be uh, fairly similar to Brother uh, Hakeem's, And uh, probably uh, the additional step I w- r- would resort to was I would um, ask the child, uh uh where are uh where are your where are your parents and uh try to uh talk to 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 the parents and uh you know uh you know try to uh you know uh you know to, uh have them child about why that sort of thing is wrong or or or, or whatever and uh you know uh you know uh, probably uh teach the child that way so that the child wouldn't be frightened or stigmatized uh you know for uh you know for his or her action but um you know but I would handle it you know, in a humane manner, so that the child is not frightened or terrified, uh, you know, as as a result of an encounter with uh, me as a policeman. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Brother Moses, how would you deal with it? Well, first of all, I think we have to recommend that this is a non-fictional um, uh, story that we're talking about. I mean, I understand that there was a, um, a news that um, this child was eight years old and you know, was accused of checking back potato chips or whatever and, uh, and you know, was encountered by the police, etc. Um, so it, it's a concrete story um, um, which bears an analysis from that viewpoint and not just an abstraction um but um i think you know the 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 responsible thing to do is to have a uh comprehensive understanding of the problem and um 
seeing the child as part of a community and a, a socioeconomic uh, person in society, uh, part of the political economy, and, and that, you know, um, have some kind of compassion in terms of the child might be hungry or, or I mean, Obviously, you know they don't just we don't just go around eating potato chips, uh, or just 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 to be eating potato chips, generally speaking. And so, um, uh, I think you know the parents who have gotten involved, been been able to engage with the parents, and and uh, it should just been handled uh, on a on a nonviolent, direct action type. Um, um, Approach to the problem. Uh, I'll just leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Moses. Eleanor, the mic is yours. Well, as was stated, this was an eight-year-old child. Uh, At most, a third grader, if not a second grader. So uh, one thing we've failed to do is even to address the vocabulary of four to eight-year-olds. They don't, many of them don't know the term parent. They know mommy and they may know daddy. And the reality is this child was victimized and it speaks to the conditions in that community that this is uh, news and it's uh, spreading around the nation, but nothing has been done to locate the child and or their, quote, parents, end quote, and offer them some type of assistance because uh, hunger, if a child ate a bag of potato chips, little people usually don't know, eight-year-olds usually don't know about stealing. They know about hunger. They know about those issues. They don't know why or for what reason. So um, I, I just think it speaks to the level of abuse that uh, poor children are subjected to and how we continue to, uh, you know, we see it with little black girls 10 years old because they're puffy and have breasts. We act like they're adults and treat them as adults. Now here we are treating an eight-year-old as if he's uh, an adult concerned about his parents and, and, and these things. When I think the bottom line is the child was hungry and the real issue with this story is the fact that the child was uh, brutalized by a public official, a policeman, and that the name and identity of this policeman is yet to come to the public's attention. And uh, there needs to be some type of public outcry. Thank you. So, I don't know. I can say with you, we didn't go to the rest of the panelists. 
I would just like to have your thoughts on, you know, there are various ways in one can communicate a message. Some are verbal, some are nonverbal. Some come with a long history of what it represents. For today, I often wonder what is the purpose of why different police departments have they have chosen to go back go back to the black and white cars, the color of black and white police cars. What does that say to you? It talks about the brutalization of children, of black children, of African children in this country, in that uh, we've seen 11-year-olds tried as adults. Now we see 14-year-olds and 13-year-olds being tried as adults. And the reality is, if these children are convicted of these crimes, a 13- or 14-year-old as an adult, this child is going to be brutalized in an adult penitentiary. And uh, it's uh, a type of social aggression. And it is uh, intellectual. It's physical. It's all of these things. This child, these children are going to go through puberty in jail with adults, without parents. And uh, this idea of black children constantly being taken to police cars, and I must admit, some years ago I saw some police doing some awful things to a child. And uh, it was so shocking and outrageous. It You could report it, but no one uh, responded. And... Uh, it seems to be the practice of some departments. Now, at one point, we had a pretty good policeman, uh, police chief here in D.C., uh, who when uh, Mayor Bowser was elected, uh, she chose to replace him. But he seemed to have gotten the police department under control because there were issues of systemic racism within certain precincts in the district, and it was not only uh, people other, uh, it wasn't only uh, non-whites being, uh, it wasn't only whites uh, brutalizing blacks, it was also blacks. And so it becomes a class issue. Um, I know that as a a brief time as an educator, I would see children coming into the kindergarten and the teachers were sitting there saying, oh, that one's going to be this, that. they already written off. Nobody's, nobody's, you're, they're walking in the door. They don't even know how to spell their name, but they're already being written off. So this seems to be a systemic problem that, um, needs to be addressed, and I think it needs to be addressed on a national level as well as uh, municipality by municipality. And um, I heard someone speak yesterday about role models and people who lead and guide us in our lives. Sometimes 
young people, young children don't have that. So it's up to each one of us to help direct those children. Tell them that if your friends are violent and aggressive, stay away from them. It's okay. You'll find other friends. And uh, just to give them some guidance, tell them, oh, look at a book every day. They're not going to learn to read if they don't even look at a book. So tell them to look at a book. Ask someone to read it to you or read with you. And it's a shame that we have to begin to direct our children like this, but they really need community support from everyone because sometimes, though they may have wonderful parents, their parents are maybe struggling in low-wage jobs and have very little time to focus on the nuclear family. You know, they're struggling to keep a roof over their head and address the issues of inflation, you know, that impact the poor and working class so greatly. You know, that is housing, food, you know, utilities, something as simple as a telephone. So, um, you know, there is really uh, a new core uh, emerging in this country very, very poor group of people. They are isolated from information, uh, from social services, from appropriate medical services, and so much more. It's, Thank you, it's, Sister it's hard to believe. Let me move to Brother Haki. Brother Haki, when we talk about Verbal and nonverbal, nonverbal communication. We see throughout the United States many police departments. They have chosen to change that image by going back to the black and white police cars. What does that symbolize to you? Well, I think what this essentially what they're saying is to bring back the old. I think uh, the implication is that the police department, you know, we don't uh, doesn't take uh, doesn't take any crap. Uh, we kick ass and take names. I think that's what the, the whole point in terms of going back to black and white. Uh, so normally, when you regress like that, it has negative connotations. And so clearly, you know, it doesn't. There's nothing good about going back to black and white cars. Uh, simply, the reason why they got away from black and white cars was because they wanted to create a precedent which said. Uh, which implied uh, is a, does cops have, uh, uh, in the process of a new way in terms of administering, you know, law, law and order. Uh, so when you go backwards, when you go back to the black and white, then you say that you want to revert back to a way in which you, you really have no respect for the people in which you police, in which the only, uh, the, the, the only expectation as a police officer is that when you approach an individual, that they submit completely, and that any type of talking back or any type of... Uh, uh, look up indifference will be met with maybe with a bullet club or, or, or a bullet to the head. Uh, so clearly I think it has very negative implications in terms of going back to, I think uh, one of the things is that, you know, in addition to the black and white brother Africa, we cannot exclude the fact that when we talk about going back to black and white, these black and white police units or cars, keep in mind also the police precincts themselves are, um, are, are situated as such 
that the public does not have access to those to those to those institutions. So if the public doesn't have access to the institutions that police you, then what are they what are the, what are they saying to the public at large? They're saying to the public at large, you are in fact the enemy. And I don't think I can't make it any clearer that people don't get that one. Uh, but essentially, that's what they're saying. So all of this stuff in terms of the, the wholesale changes in terms of back to the black and white cars is all indicative of the fact that the society is heading backwards. And in fact, those people positions of power are just precisely what they want. Uh, they want a situation where you have the cops are more brutal, uh, where they routinely kill, uh, where they routinely disrespect. You know, as a, as a, as a, as a as a as a, as a uh, legitimate methodology in terms of administering law and order. So clearly, Brother Africa, it all has all very negative, uh, it has negative uh, implications. Thank you, Haggy. Anthony, give me your narrative on why would you waste taxpayer dollars just to change the coloring of your vehicle? What does this decision of going back to a black and white police car Symbolize to you. It symbolizes, um, as uh, the panelists, uh, uh, the panelists pointed out earlier, a sign of uh, going backwards, and uh, and uh, that's what the term conservative means. Uh, conservative is the main. T- uh, it you know it means maintaining things the way they are or were or have been historically and uh, and I think people need to be aware of this that uh that uh that that that, that police are going back to their primary function which is to protect bourgeois property relations or bourgeois property, to be exact, and that anything, uh, you know, uh, uh, other than that role that they may play outside of that, uh, you know, is secondary. And, uh, you know, they, uh, they, they do not protect lives. And uh, it's important that people understand that that's not the primary role of the police. Their uh, uh, their role is to maintain order by any means necessary. And if that means, uh, uh, you know, violence, perpetrated against uh, you, you know destroying masses so be it and uh, you know and the thing about it though uh, you know the uh, the notion as uh, protectors of the community and whatnot that has to be uh, you know uh, uh, you know gotten out of our heads uh, you know, we have to understand that in a capitalist society, the primary role of the police is to protect the property of the ruling class. In other words, the rich only. And uh, any other role they may play individually 
you know, does not detract from what their primary responsibility is. And that's why we see the police acting toward people the way they do, because uh, this is an anti-people type of society. And uh, and I think uh, and I think that's what the long-term implication of uh, going back to the black and white, uh, you know, uh, portends for us that the police are primarily, uh, you know, there to protect the property of the ruling class and not to serve the community. Thank you, Anthony. Brother Moses, talk to me. You're in the seat and you're going to take the heat. What does it mean to you when you see a black and white police car? Sam Moses? Brother Moses, we're talking to you. Yes, sir. Yeah, well, you know, origin of the family, private property in the state, Frederick Ingalls. The state and revolution, the island, and uh, you know the the government represents the oppressor, and uh, you know we need a, a revolutionary state, a revolutionary government, and, and so you know until that day comes, we are we're faced with what we face with, and and. Uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I don't usually, I'm not usually seeking out the police, um, generally speaking. I don't know. Um, anyway, I, I'll leave it right there. Um, the, the, the state is reactionary and government is reactionary and it's imperialist, it's capitalist, defendant, and we need a revolutionary government and a revolutionary state. It's, that's, that's as simple as I can put it. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. So, panelists, we'll make a tra- transition to our theme today. And by Africa and uh, Western European burden, I would like to get a, just a relatively quick response from y'all in terms of what, what do you make of this issue of confusion around what's not one should or should not wear a mask, and different states have different policy positions on it. I, I knew they stated in the future the world will be ruled through chaos. Is this an example of this, Brother Haki? What you make of this? <laughs> Brother Alfred, you know, you know, I we 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 we've been talking to talking about the subject ad nauseum, and uh, the bottom line is that I think at this point in time, most people understand. This is part part of a broader strategy. But what is interesting is that recently what came out of uh, Russia released some information, which they've been holding on to for a long time, about the U.S. involvement in terms of biological labs in Ukraine. So it speaks to the kind of kind of complicity uh, that's affiliated with these so-called viruses. Uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, particularly when COVID comes to COVID-19, uh, one of the things, and I I, I I, I I always say to people is that you know when you start talking about this you know this little spike proteins I'll talk about the 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 ability of these this this this, this virus uh, 
to enter the human cell by virtue of a protein that was introduced in a laboratory, then what you're simp- essentially what you're saying is that there are people who actually were in a, in a process, in a, in, a, in, a, in a stage of process, of planning, uh, you know, these kind, these kind of viruses. So the question is, when creating these kind of viruses, what are the objectives? What are you hoping to achieve in terms of, you know, injecting these kind of viruses into society? Just to some extent, Brother Alfred, there's no question the economy is in trouble. Capitalism is in trouble. And one thing the history has shown us is that the capitalists will do in and everything in terms of um, everything's expedient. They will do in and everything in terms of, you know, longevity. It doesn't matter what it is. So if you got to kill X number of people in terms of facilitating your capitalist objectives, then that's, that's what you do. I mean, they have no problem with that. Uh, you know, but the genes of it is to create viruses, and when people die, so where the virus did it. We had no part in it. It was the viruses. But I think most people, by and large, at this point in history, are very clear that there's something suspect in terms of the introduction of COVID-19 you know, into the population. And so, and so, when it, so to get to your point, you know, one of the things is that when you, when you talk about the suspect nature of introducing this virus into society, uh, one of the things, if in fact, if it's such a threat to society, then there will be no, there will be no around, you know, just, you know, just how, uh, just how uh, destructive this virus is, that the question in terms of masks would, would, would not be a question at all, that certainly masks would have to be wear, worn simply because the virus uh, 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 is, is, uh, dictates that masks be, masks, masks be worn. But the mere fact that they have all these discussions that, you know, yes, some places you can wear masks, other places you can't, you don't have to wear masks, blah, 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 speaks to the fact that there's a realization, you know, that this virus is not what people think it is. In fact, one of the things, the people who been, uh, who suffer the most from this COVID-19 virus happen to be older people. Now, perhaps it has to do something with their age in terms of, in terms of, you know, their debilitary, debilitary conditions. I mean, given the fact that you're of age, then you're certainly more susceptible to you know, all kinds of diseases simply because you're older. I mean, you know, you, you get to that point where it's almost time to transition. So you're much more susceptible. Uh, the mere fact, you know, that, uh, you know, uh, 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 people, you know, who haven't taken those vaccines uh, continue to thrive and don't come down with COVID-19 suggests that there's something fundamentally askew in terms of being told, you know, that COVID-19 is a threat, uh, but yet not manifesting itself in terms of, in terms of numbers, particularly as it relates to, you know, to younger, younger people in terms of being impacted, you know, by COVID-19. So, Brother Africa, I think that we cannot, we cannot, we cannot exclude anything when we start talking about the machinations of, of the capitalist class. And nothing they won't do. I mean, you know, and this is, you know, and so when, so when Bill Gates talk about the fact, not yeah, Bill Gates, when Bill Gates talk about the, the impact in terms of, um, in terms of uh, overpopulation, well, certainly there are many ways you can uh, you can accommodate overpopulation in terms of limiting numbers in terms around the world. Number one, you can do well, certainly one of the things you can do. Is education, particular education for women, which are empowered, who don't feel that children children is a is, is an indication, you know, of their of their womanhood that they can do express their womanhood in other ways other than having babies. That's one of the things you certainly can do. Also, you can educate people. Also, you can create the economic conditions that people are subjected to, which which tends to make people do rash kinds of things, or people or tend to get people. Uh, encourage people to to uh, to to engage in all kind of maladaptive behaviors, 
uh, if in fact you create an economy in which which is beneficial to the overall mass of the people, then certainly then people will behave more responsibly, which means that this question in terms of COVID-19 does become a question of people simply going to take necessary precautions, quote-unquote, necessary precautions in terms of prevention of COVID-19. So clearly, Brother Africa, so I think that all of this has a lot to do in terms of planning. I think it's all part of a grand strategy, and and, 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 and I could go into the science behind it, but uh, but I'm tired of talking about it if we're honest about we're frank about it. Uh, because at this point, at this point in history, if people haven't concluded that there's something fundamentally skewed in terms of COVID-19, I guess they won't get it. And, and, and there's no sense of me beating a dead horse. And I'll simply close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Hacking. Brother Anthony, talk to me. Why there are so many different policies at different states, different agencies, different professionals around this whole question of the coronavirus? I think the reason for that is uh, COVID-19, even though it's a health issue, is being used as a as a political tool uh, by the uh, you know by the uh, uh, bourgeoisie. Uh, one uh, as a means of population control, and also by spreading confusion. And also, and also, it uh, is a consequence of the of the very haphazard method uh, the healthcare system operates in uh, most capitalist countries, uh, especially uh, the U.S. And uh, there, uh, that the, there is one. There's a lack of a uniform health care policy uh, and uh, it's in the uh, insurance company's interest to keep it that way and uh, and uh, let's see and so there is uh, the, uh, you know there are all kinds of debates and struggles and uh, they're confusing but the thing about it though at, at root I think COVID-19, the fact that it was, uh, you know, it was uh, an illness developed in a lab, uh, you know, I think uh, I, I think the ultimate goal is uh, population control, which, uh, which is a mechanism by which capitalism chooses to maintain itself because, uh, uh, let's see, a more humane would be to provide uh, to ensure that the entire population has adequate health care. But then, but that, that system would not be capitalism if it did that. So, uh, you know, so uh, that is uh, one of the, you know, the major, uh, major factors. And also, uh, because there are no uniform policies, that different uh, politicians are giving different signals to the pe- uh, to people, and that spreads confusion. And uh, where, where where there's confusion, there's a, there's a greater uh, risk of uh, of uh, health uh, and understanding and and adequate health care.
think that's the bottom line is the fact that, uh, uh, you know, confusion is being spread by the media primarily and also, uh, you know, by, uh, by political officials. And uh, COVID-19, I think, is being manipulated in order to spread confusion and ultimately, uh, you know, to cause a situation in which, you know, a lot of people are mm. uh, are dying in the process. Mm. Thank you, Anthony. We're going to address Eleanor. Eleanor, give us some clarity. Clarity. clarity on the issue of why there are so many different positions taken around this whole issue of when or not to wear a mask. Um, it became a, a political issue uh, in 2020 and 2019 when the then President Donald Trump denied that there was a virus and suggested that it could be cured with uh, a variety of home remedies and other things. That misinformation started this big mass scramble. Also, Brother Africa, I'm sorry on the last question. I didn't realize you were asking a question about black and white cars, but police cars, but I will move on. So uh, the misinformation. You go ahead and take your stab at it right quick, Eleanor. We'll give you the liberty uh, to take your stab at it. Go ahead and make your point well, on the, the black whole, and white cars here coming. I I didn't realize that uh, that they were going back to black and white cars, and uh, I know in the District of Columbia they have so many police departments, but I think that. Uh, uh, the police department, in reference to black and white cars or anything else, the main thing I'm concerned about the police department in, in, in our country is the militarization of them. On Friday, uh, Earth Day, in, in the District of Columbia, the police looked like combat soldiers, and the vehicles they were using seemed far too heavy for an urban environment. They look like they were ready for war on the countryside or, you know, or or, or uh, multi-purpose terrain, you know, everything from going over land, over roads, you know, it, it, it was outrageous. So my concern is the increased police budget uh, in the feds with the feds this year and and also the uh, uh, increased budget in uh, our cities and the militarization of the police and the type of weaponry that is being used it literally puts the civilian population in danger and uh I think we need to re-examine uh, what's going on and what the role of the police are and will be in our community and uh, how 
they will serve us now and in the future. And it and the militarization of the police is dangerous. It put, puts all our lives at risk, especially our youth, because they're outside, whether it's on basketball courts or sitting in the parks on playgrounds and this sort of thing where uh, the police tend to uh, roll up or uh, go with this type of equipment. I think it's it's just dangerous. I think it is uh, moving toward a totalitarian sort of uh, class, and it's very dangerous, totalitarian type of... uh, uh, of government, and I think it's very dangerous, and it also speaks to the things like the 39 states with the voter suppression laws, with the new anti-abortion laws, with uh, the creating of laws that would allow the behavior of Kyle Rittenhouse to be duplicated in other states and other places. I think we're at a very dangerous time, and uh uh, we need uh, political action uh, to suppress this type of behavior in society. And uh, the black and white cars, at least they were cars. They weren't uh, armored vehicles. And uh, either way, uh, I agree with uh, the panelists and everyone else that going backwards uh, is uh, really terrible and dangerous to the community. Thank you, Mr. Sister. We'll be looking right now to go have a special break. And when we come back, we'll have a discussion on that thing tonight, Africa and the Western Europe burden. We would like for you to join us for dialing in at 323-679-0841. And we ask Brother Anthony to sign us all in terms of we're critiquing this article, The African Russo War by W.E.B. Bogart Du Bois. In the subtext, it says that in a very real sense, Africa is a picture cause of this terrible overturning of civilization which we have lived to see. We're going to have that discussion more as relates to today's theme. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Moon. And what we're going to sign off right now is ask the question that Brother Marvin asked us. What is going on Brother, brother, 
just like the city that stagger on the coastline in a nation that just can't stand much more like the forest buried beneath the highway never had a chance to grow never had a chance to grow And now it's winter, winter in America, yes, that all of the hills have been killed, sent away, yeah, but the people know, the people know it's winter. in America And ain't nobody fighting Cause nobody knows what to say Save your soul Lord knows from winter in America The Constitution A noble piece of paper with free society the struggle but they died in vain and now democracy is a ragtime on the corner a hope and false rain it's looking like either hope and hope and false rain and I see the robbers first in barren treetops Watching last-ditch races Marching across the floor But just like the peace behind That vanished in our dreams Never had a chance to grow Never had a chance to grow And now it's winter in America and all of the hillers have been killed or betrayed yeah but the people know the people know it's winter Lord knows it's winter in America 
Transition to our thing tonight, Africa and the Western Europe bird. And uh, some articles we took from various writers that raised some real pertinent points that we want to raise, and hopefully it will stick in your consciousness as you go through your daily lives of trying to help move your people forward, humanity. One article is an article titled The African Roots of War. Published went by W.E.B. Du Bois back in the early 1900s, if I'm not mistaken, part of his many writings as he was critiquing the world during his struggles with it. It states the African roots of war. In a very real sense, Africa is a prime cause of this terrible overturning of civilization which we have lived to see. As we talk about title, I was like as a premise, has Europe also been a burden to Africa? Was Europe the burden to Africa? Brother Anthony, your response and your response on this article, which you took from it. Like a show, Brother Anthony. While you wait for Brother Anthony to connect, um, okay, Anthony. Hello? Yeah. Anyway, uh, The African Roots of War was written in May 1915. I forget which magazine it appeared in, uh, that I don't remember. But it was written in 1915 toward the beginning of the first imperialist war, so-called World War One, and uh, it was a struggle over the who over who would uh, control the major resources of Africa. That was the spark, and its roots go back as far as the 1884 Berlin Conference, in which 
uh, Africa was carved up among the major European uh, uh, countries. Now, not all of the European countries agreed uh, uh, to, to the shares they got of the African continent. That is one of the causes of uh, of the first uh, imperialist war. Uh, it was a war for the redivision of the resources of the world, basically, because all the known world had been pretty much conquered by uh, by the capitalist countries. So the only way resources could be reallocated is through redivision. And uh that's uh and uh so that's what was the underlying cause of World War One. And uh the other uh the other takeaway I got from this article was that according to Du Bois Ancient Europeans had a different regard uh, for Africa than contemporary Europeans. The praise semper novi quid ex Africa means out of Africa always something new comes. And uh, uh, and uh, that uh, that is uh, true if you look at Africa's history. And its contributions uh, uh, to humanity. Uh, it was in Africa where, where, where human beings first learned to use fire, and uh, that uh, that technological accomplishment is so basic that people overlook the fact that it was a technological accomplishment. I mean, uh, we use fire for uh, for all sorts of things, including construction, cooking, uh, smelting of metals, uh, et cetera. And, uh, and also, uh, let's see, uh, a lot of uh, scientific thought and spiritual or religion, religious concepts first emerged in Africa. Ancient Europeans were keenly aware of this, and uh, and um, you know, and has largely been forgotten by contemporary Europeans uh, because um, the uh, the the propaganda of the bourgeoisie and the media have have uh, uh, confused and misled a lot of people about uh you know uh african contributions to humanity and uh and uh a lot of empires have fallen as a result of their tr- uh, of their attempts to uh control and dominate africa including uh greece uh britain um uh, rome Etc. And uh, so, uh, but uh, you know, uh, but uh, the thing is, uh, ancient Europeans were were, were well aware of uh, of uh, 
the contributions of Africa to world civilization. As a matter of fact, uh, Morocco, uh, uh, an empire based out of uh, Northeast Africa, uh, had one-time domination over Spain and France, particularly southern France and uh, Spain and Portugal. So uh, the ancient uh, Europeans were well, well, well uh, aware of uh, Africa's contribution uh, to, to humanity. And I think, indeed, Europe has been a burden, especially over the last 500 years, to Africa because it is um, – it is European domination that has left Africa in the devastated state that it finds itself. And uh, not that other countries have not tried to, uh, you know, uh, uh, conquer Africa's resources in the past. As a matter of fact, a careful analysis of African history indicates that uh, various Asian countries also tried to, you know, uh, control Africa's resources. But over the last few centuries, it's been primarily Europe that has been Africa's burden. And, uh, you know, and uh, we have to organize in order to lift that burden. But... Uh, there's a, there's a prevailing attitude among some Europeans that Africa must remain poor in order to maintain the lifestyle enjoyed by uh, the uh, the bourgeoisie in Europe, North America, and Asia, and that's assuming that capitalism. Uh, that things remain stay the way they are, and they don't have to be if Africans get organized. And it's in our interest to organize to liberate Africa. That's why we say that uh, the liberation of Africa must be the objective of all African revolutionaries throughout the world. And I close with that. Thank you, Anthony. Hi, Kitty. You know, in order to go forward, you often say we must take a look and go back to the past. Now, when you read the article of the African Russo War, what lessons can we learn from that so we have a better understanding of our contemporary problems? Well, in, 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 in order to go forward, we have to understand the mistakes of the past. There's a real problem thinking that it somehow just obliterate the past, that everything's going to be all right. That is a conservative position. In fact, people who are, who are, are conservatives uh, take that position simply because there are benefits to assuming such position. Of course, if you're conservative and you want to exploit others, particularly around the question of, question of ethnicity, then, of course, to, 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 you don't want to talk about the historical wrongs committed because if you talk about the historical wrongs committed against a group, then inevitably you know, that group is going to ask questions. And when asking questions, it comes to the realization that things simply have to change. And, of course, as a conservative, one of the things you don't want is people advocating for change. When you talk about civilization, it's very, very interesting. 
Because when you talk about the origin of human beings, uh, you can't you can't do that without talking about Africa. <laughs> that is where that is the origin of human beings. That's where we come from. In particular, when you talk about civilization, there's a tendency in terms of Western world when you talk about civilization, they talk about civilization starting during the period of of, of, of Greece. And, or maybe Rome, but it's ironic because when you look at in terms of world history, in terms of civilization, you know, civilizations that that lasted tens of thousands of years, in particular like Kush, the Numenian Empire, the Kemetic Empire, Sahai, Mali, Ghana, Zimbabwe, Punt, Somalia, these are civilizations that lasted for tens of thousands of years, and yet, uh, hardly do anybody know anything in terms of you know, their contributions in terms of civilization. And I think that is ironic. But one of the things that Brother Anthony raised, he raised the question in terms of contemporary Europeans not understanding or, or who don't understand the history. They understand the history. It's not a question that they're all ignorant in terms of they don't understand. The question is, is it their interest to acknowledge that they understand? I think it's not in their interest. So in that, in that context, um, there was no, no, question, no discussion around, you know, these historical um, uh, uh, ironies that play themselves out from time to time, particularly when it comes to you know, Africa's contributions to the world. Because one of the things, that when you start talking about Africa's contributions to the world, in all this, 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 this nefarious notion that, in fact, all things started with the West, clearly that that's, 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 fallacious, that's fallacious, that it's a lie. And so, therefore, they got a vested interest in terms of perpetuating uh, misconception. I think one of the things this article talks about, it talked about the, the Berlin Conference and talked about over 100 million Africans losing their lives. I mean, that is very interesting. But in order for them to get to that point, one of the things you have to understand, there was a process involved in terms of getting to that point. One of the things W.E.B. Du Bois pointed out, he pointed out the, the color line. And so, in other words, the question of skin color took on significance in the Western world. And this was this is part and part, part, of, part of the plan in terms of the subjugation of African people for the sole purpose of taking their resources. It had nothing to do in terms of, you know, a biological distinction. It has more to do in terms of the subjugation of Africans, you know, by labeling them somehow as different or somehow not not as human as, as Europeans to justify stealing their resources. So we've got to be clear on that point. Also, one of the things that they do instead in terms of this process was to destroy African history. And this is important because the book by D.W. Nobles, Historians Against History, it's important that we understand the, the, the covenant that was agreed upon by Western leaders in terms of working together to destroy African history. It is no mistake. And so when you go to, as a consequence, when you go to, to the Vatican and you go to the basement, which is guarded, guarded 24 hours a day, of there are all kinds of books, all kinds of documents attesting to the fact that African history, in terms of the powerful, very powerful African history, in terms of not only its contributions to the world, but the origin of human beings itself. And so one would wonder why, with all this documentation, it's not open to the world and that you can only see it under certain conditions. But clearly, the Western world has a has an interest in terms of safeguarding or preventing release of information that contradicts this narrative in terms of you know European supremacy when it comes to, when it comes to human beings. Uh, and one of the things we have to dispel this notion when we start talking about race and understanding that this question in terms of no such thing as a race. That's a biological. That's that's a biological. It's not a biological distinction. It's something that was created in terms of justification of oppression of people based upon skin color. It has no, it's not based upon biology. It's not based upon genetics. It's not based upon science. It's based upon someone's first notion that if you propagate this idea that, that there's differences in people and that these differences are, are genetically genetically based, uh, then it can justify all kinds of theft um, in terms of stealing one's resources. 
also, I think, and, and finally, I think in just terms of process, you know, when we talk about uh, this process of, you know, uh, subjugating of Africa, uh, one of the things, ironically, that when you, when you talk about the subjugation of Africa, it has devastating impact for Europe. Because in the process of sending Africa resources, it creates a situation in Europe in which fewer and fewer people have access to their wealth. In that context, these people represent what is essentially an aristocracy class. And so, and also, they represent a despotic class. In other words, they have so much wealth and so much power, they determine what goes on in society. In fact, so the possibility of democracy is simply not possible, simply because you got this imbalance in terms of those of the few who have an overwhelming amount of the money control society. And so, therefore, so the tendency in terms of aristocracy despotism is, just, is, is basically is, is c- c- tied to uh, the, uh, the problems that uh, the, the problems of uh, African subjugation you know, by the West. And also, I should add, Brother Africa, that when we talk about aristocracy and despotism, we can't, we can't uh, leave out uh, Africa's role in terms of, you know, um, the, uh, uh, terms of the plunder of Africa. One of the things that when you talk about the plunder of Africa, you can't succeed with the plunder of Africa without participation of African leaders. So in that context, that creating a scarcity in terms of access to wealth, uh, the West can actually enhance this, this whole feeling of aristocracy or despotism among African leaders. In that context, they have no these leaders have no 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 concern at all in terms of the the ordeal or the problem confronting our people. I think she knew Achebe in his book, Things Fall Apart, this is an excellent example in terms of laying out the problem in terms of despotism as it exists in Africa and why it's so difficult in terms of any real movement towards social justice or economic justice in Africa. Uh, also, one thing, Brother Africa, and I'm going to say this and I, I conclude, but this whole psychological dimension of, of oppression, I think it's important that we talk a little bit about that. Because one of the things that, you know, that one of the reasons why, it's, uh, race, um, why um, racism is, is is so important in terms of, in, from a psychological point of view, is that it does a very good job in terms of um, pitting one against one another. So the context of capitalism, certainly if you could threaten others uh, 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 that if they don't allow themselves to be exploited at the workplace, that they simply can tap you know, African labor in terms of replacing them, then you pit groups against one another, which, which precisely uh, why it's possible in terms of uh, uh, maintaining this kind of division that exists in society that benefits those from positions of power. Also, one of the things in terms of the psychological aspect in terms of the oppression of, of racism that's so, that's, so per, that's so paramount is that one of the things that, you know, there is this overwhelming fear in terms of, you know, um, white people's position is that, you know, that if things would change, if things were fair, then, then African people or people of color generally would do to white people what white people have historically done to them. And in fact, when you look at South Africa, nothing can be further from the truth. Uh, you would think that in terms of given the barbaric treatment that the, the Africans in Africa retreat, you think there'd be some retribution in terms of what happened to them, but that's not what's happening. African people just want to, you know, uh, the opportunity, you know, to, to be the best they can be, opportunity for employment, opportunity for decent life, you know, opportunity to take care of their families. And so, therefore, the question in terms of retribution or, or penalizing white folks is not their concern. But I think also, <coughs> one of the things you raised, and one thing I alluded to earlier, is that this is tendency among white liberals in terms of refusal to acknowledge the sociological problems associated with a negative mindset among African people. 
And so when we talk about the socialization in terms of impacting African people, particularly as it manifests itself in terms of self-hatred, one thing we want to realize is that a lot of these white liberals refuses, even in the context of programs, refuses to deal with that issue. And one wonders why. You know, are, you, are they uncomfortable with dealing with this issue? Or what is it? Or they think the issue is irrelevant? Certainly, I think from a class perspective, perhaps the position is that, well, it's irrelevant to self, the self-hatred of African people. It's irrelevant. But in fact, it's very, very relevant. If you're going to, in fact, create a new paradigm, one of the things you have to do, you have to empower people who are inflicted the most you by the injustice uh, perpetuated by the system. In that context, the white left has an has a interest in terms of eradicating the self-hatred that exists among African people because the more the less self-hatred exists among African people, then the more African people are empowered to literally change society to bring about, to bring about the kind of change which progressives hope to see. So the mere fact that white liberals refuse to, to address this issue raises the question in terms of the bottom raises the question in terms of is there any definitive difference between white liberals and white conservatives in terms of in terms of their response to racism in society? So I think W. B. Du Bois is by no stretch of imagination a, a nationalist, but I think his point was that uh, we have to deal with these questions, even though these questions are uncomfortable to deal with. We nonetheless have to deal have to deal with these questions. And I said earlier I would elaborate, so I'm just a little bit, and then I'm close to this about Africa. But one of the things is that in, back in the 70s, they had, they had programs specifically for little African children introducing them to calculus and physics between the ages of 5 to 12. Well, that program was destroyed. It was defunded. And the question is, even though that program was very, very effective in terms of reducing the kind of outcomes you want, you know, intellectually or academically among African youth, of the program would discontinue. And the question becomes, why would you discontinue a program so successful? So a lot of these white liberals were very uncomfortable with this notion that you're exposing these little African children to calculus and physics at such an early age and understanding that the tangible results that brought about who, who in turn sought to destroy the progress that was being made. One would wonder if, in fact, if they are progressive or liberal, as they say, then why would you do that? Then you would think that they would fight tooth and nail to preserve such programs. That wasn't the case. Also, the question turns around the curriculum focused on black history. One of the things that if we're going to we're going to do with this question in terms of equity, then we can't deal with the question of equity unless we deal first and foremost with this nefarious notion that in fact that in, that genetics and intelligence are tied together. To the extent that you know, in, in American society, uh, they do a very good job in terms of convincing us, you know, that genetics is tied genetics is tied is tied to to quote unquote race. And to the extent that uh, we believe that, we don't understand history. So if you teach African children a history in terms of their contributions to the world, then they begin to see through this, through this, through this, through this canard, this notion that, in fact, that skin color defines intelligence and that they see the system for what it is. The question becomes, why is it that these white liberals refuse to acknowledge, or refuse to acknowledge the importance of black history for African children, or ask the importance of black history for all children, for that matter, well, they're refusing to acknowledge the significance in terms of black history and would like to see it, like to see it uh, removed. So clear to me, so again, this, so in terms of making this, this distinction between liberal whites and conservative whites, it becomes problematic. And finally, Brother Africa, I also must say that, you know, one of the things, you know, when we, when we talk about, the, you know, the African identity, one of the things that white liberals have a very difficult time with is this whole question in terms of, you know, identify yourself as an African. 
Um, they're much worse than before. You just African. They always say no, African American. So no, 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 African. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, given based upon my treatment in the society, they clearly, uh, the people in the power, the systems, the institutions say I'm not American. So why I'm gonna call myself American when I know that society say you're not American? Indeed, when we talk about voters' rights, when you talk about disenfranchisement of African people, and you talk about the right to being uh, ratified every 20 years for for African people's right to vote. And you know, what you're essentially saying, that African people are not citizens. So why the hell I'm going to turn around and call myself an African-American when, I'm, when, when the reality is that the system is that much opposed to my survival? And so therefore, I prefer African because that's the, that's, that's the basis of my, of my origin, and I, and I stick with that. And so therefore, the white liberals have a very difficult time with it. I can see why conservative whites will have a difficult time with it because the whole question in terms of control, in terms of their need, in terms of domination and subjugation is so strong, I can see why they would insist that you call yourself African American. But white liberals, they should understand, or certainly they, they should be the first to understand, you know, that when people say I'm an African, then they should understand the implications of what they're saying and why that's germane and why it's so relevant in ter- as, 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 as a proper identification, you know, for African people born, you know, in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, so clearly, Brother Africa, so W.B. Du Bois did a very good job in terms of breaking down some of the nuances in terms of this question, in terms of the historical wrongs committed against Africa, and why uh, wars, for instance, will continue to be a, a, a fact of life, you know, until this, 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 this wrong is addressed. So clearly, we have to understand history is important. Uh, we can no longer afford to be ignorant and think that the less we know, the better we are, because the reality is that the less we know, the more, the more, uh, the more we internalize, you know, the, the, the narratives, you know, of the social system which says that somehow African people are lacking in one way or the other. You brother high key, what we're gonna do right now, we're going to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor. When you were looking at this or critiquing this article by the boys, Africa, Africa moves to the wall. Give us some things of interest of why you think it's important for us to go back in the past so we can better understand the present <coughs> condition today. Ms. Eleanor. Well, the interesting thing about the article, it's written in the early 20th century. It takes a look at the commodities of Africa and the amount that is produced of things like cocoa and and uh, not to mention gold and diamonds, but cocoa and cotton from Uganda and other resources. And uh, it even talks about the uh, Monroe Doctrine is what caused the development of the United States and what fostered the development of the United States. And uh, it talks about uh, uh, the Abyssinians, just the Abyssinians in in, in 1915 uh, had uh, some 10 
million dollars uh, being uh, produced through uh, the, the growth that made it possible, and the nations nations crowded to Addis Ababa, and all these things are but uh, beginnings. He says the tropical Africa and its people are being bought more irrevocably each year, and there there can be no doubt of the economic possibilities of uh, Africa, he said, in the near future. It really sounds like he's talking in the 21st century, not the early 20th century. And um, what is interesting, he talked about Africa's contributions from antiquity, its contributions to the Greek and Roman cultures. And as the fellow panelists talked about the development of uh, the one God concept and religion as we know it and the development of the Coptic Church, out of Africa, and he talked about how the Asians moved in on Africa, trying to uh, get their fair share or get their share. And we saw that uh, up until 1495, uh, the Moors occupied Southern Europe and crossed the Alps and other things, so they had flourishing economies. We also know that during the 15th, 16th, and 17th, 15th, 16th century, that European kings uh, from Spain and Portugal and other places studied in West Africa on what is the, called the Gold Coast. And uh, the men studied there to learn the science and uh, the knowledge of the day, which was astronomy, mathematics, religion, and other things. So the article is uh, quite fascinating when... Uh, when uh, he talked about the cotton crop of Uganda, as I said, that uh, it raised from 3,000 bales in 1909 to 50,000 bales in 1914. So you saw the growth that was happening in Africa and the colonialization. And the other important thing was the... uh, not not more than the cocoa, more than uh, other things was the uh, the division and how Negro, how black begin to mean uh, barbaric, uncivilized, and this sort of thing. How that began to be perpetuated. It was being perpetuated and promoted during his lifetime in the early 20th century. 
So that's a very important uh, takeaway from this article. We often think some of these things are very ancient, but some of these concepts appear to have uh, advanced incredibly, but have their roots in the early 20th century in the uh, post in the uh, aftermath of uh, the slave cultures in the Americas. And he, he talked about South Africa as well as Angola, Nigeria, the rubber, the palm oil, and uh, its uh, export and, uh, uh, from the west coast of Africa. Um, and he talked about does the average city citizen realize the extraordinary uh, economic advances of Africa and to, and of Black Africa in recent years? And he wrote this article uh, in 1915, and he talked about T. Morrell who knows his uh, Africa better than most white men, he says. And uh, it was quite phenomenal. And he talked about 283 tons of palm oil in 1800 to 80,000 tons uh, in 1913. So Africa was growing and on the move throughout the 19th century and um, was growing by leaps and bounds in the early 20th century. The issue was the colonialization of Africa and that the resources of Africa were not benefiting African people. And then also the difference between a resource economy, one that... uh, produces palm oil, cotton, uh, 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 gold, diamonds, versus a uh, production economy and why the production economies are always more wealthy than the resource economies. And that now is a, a question that I'd like to be answered and figured out, and that's Uh, one of the things I took from this article, um, um, Brother Africa, and uh, why he said that uh, Africa is prostrate. And he was saying this was in in 1914. What, what, What did that mean? And he talked about the Abyssinians, and that's the, I believe, the Ethiopians, so it, it, it's quite phenomenal, and he talked about uh, Americans and, and the West Indian Negro who had attempted to, uh, though it was fertile, to, toward their attempts toward freedom. Uh, but such steps had been uh, pretty pretty much uh, effectively stopped. And uh, it's quite it's it's, it's a very um, important. Uh, uh, story to read, and W. D. Du Bois is truly a scholar, and the 
comments from the fellow panelists really speak to that as well as their skills as scholars. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. You're listening to Africa on the Move. Um, this is the first part of a two-part series, Africa and the Western Europe Burden. When we come back, we're going to ask all our panelists to give us our final thoughts for the night, and they'll have a few announcements. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Move. Oh, 
we'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Moon. You'll listen to the first part of the two-part series, Tide of Africa and the Western Europe Burden. We're going to now make a few announcements, then with some closing thoughts from our political panelists and analysts. But before we do this, we'd like to make an announcement uh, concerning Africa on the Moon in the upcoming month of May. Africa on the Moon is co-partnering with the AAPRPGC, the All-African People's Membership Party, as we will host something very unique and exciting. And I want everybody to tune in. And if you want to follow the program on the show, we encourage you to follow our website. It will list the very dates and times where we will be participating this year with the AAPRPGC as they celebrate African Liberation Month. And it's one that will be hosting activities and programs that will put our people on the course of liberation. So please support us and friends starting this upcoming weekend. Make sure you constantly engage the website for the AAPRPGC, which is www.aprp-gc.org. Keep up with our listening to the program for the month of May. So right now, we're going back to our political panelists, and we start, well, start off with Brother Moses, and we'll ask him to give us his final thoughts for the night. Brother Moses. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay. Um, yeah, I think, you know, we had a insightful program here tonight. Uh, um, I think there are many lessons to be learned and applied to our lives and uh, make us a more progressive people and um, uh, get to govern ourselves according to the announcements, I guess. And uh, I, I look forward to next week. Uh, 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 I just I just don't want people to be duped by, as Bob Marley said in, in Zimbabwe. I want we're going to find out who the real revolutionaries are, and uh, and uh, who who's just being cannon fodder for the for the imperialist bourgeoisie. And so, anyway. Have a good night. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. From Brother Moses and Sister Eleanor. Your final thoughts for tonight, Sister Eleanor. I just want to go back to the article with the boys. Uh, not the article, but Chapter 3 of uh, the book where he says Africa was the land. He's saying in 1914 that Africa was the land of the 20th century. And here we are in the 21st century, and Africa continues to be the land of opportunity and resources. Uh, It continues, uh, uh, of course, gold and diamonds, but the cocoa, the cotton, the rubber, uh, so many other things, the the palm oil, just so many extraordinary uh, 
resources that the world depends on and how we saw such incredible growth, how he described such incredible growth uh, between uh, the turn of the 20th century and 1914 and even from 1800 uh, to 1914, he talked about how the palm oil exports went from 283 tons uh, to 80,000 tons in 1913. What an incredible uh, growth, market growth. And uh, the issue is how do we make sure that Mother Africa benefits from these natural resources and that the economies of Africa um, develop the wealth as these, quote, production economies in the North, in Europe, uh, uh, America, and other places. And uh, that is something that really needs to be looked at. And I really thank you for this show. It was very helpful and educational. Thank you, um, Brother Africa, Brother Aki, and Anthony, and Brother Moses. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me this evening and uh, I hope everyone has a fantastic week and uh, just again thank you and good night to everyone thank who you. are listening or to fellow panelists and thank you, you Sister and good night to you okay Father Haki um you will make maybe a few announcements and then your final thoughts, Brother Haki. Yeah, sure. Uh, African Awareness Association with African American, excuse me, African Awareness Association, doing its annual Black History Education and Cultural Travel Challenge to Cuba. Uh, once in Cuba, we'll be visiting Guantanamo, Santiago de Cuba, and Havana. And this trip takes place July 23rd to July 31st, leaving out of Cancun, Mexico. Now for a pre-application, please email us at African Awareness Association, all one word, and number two at gmail.com. That's African Awareness Association, number two at gmail.com. For additional information, contact us at African Awareness Association, Inc., P.O. Box 4433, Richmond, 23220, or contact us at by phone, 804-549-7492, or area code 202-714-9435. More information about the Cuba tours, uh, Cuba to travel to Cuba, contact us at www.aaa-cubatours.com. And, of course, we encourage people to go to Cuba and see for themselves firsthand, you know, how Cuba's organized and what benefits Cuba or Cuba could have in terms of organization of African people you're here in North America. Uh, one of the things I would definitely say that, you know, in terms of dispelling a lot of myths, I think it's important that people – people who are considered themselves revolutionary. I think it's very important in terms of going to Cuba to engage in discourse in terms around, you know, what are the pros and cons in terms of revolution 
as it pertains to Cuban society. And to get some perspective in terms of, you know, you know, why the Cuban field change is, is change was inevitable, why it was necessary, why the Cuban people were willing to sacrifice in terms of bringing about that end. I think these questions are key as, as capitalism deconstructs. Uh, the bottom line is that in America, we have to seriously contemplate what are we going to do? Uh, what is our strategy? What are, you know, how are we going to contend with these, the manifestation of all kinds of very destructive acts uh, taking place in society, which has very deadly ramifications for the masses of African people and the working people in the society. So Cuba gives us some key in terms of some understanding, uh, certainly, some, certainly some clarity in terms of, you know, uh, how, to, how to develop the, uh, the, 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 the economy, not the economy, but how to develop um, the community in terms of, of dealing with a lot of these issues that are so pertinent in terms of, you know, um, injustice as it perpetuates itself in the context of capitalist America. Now, my final, my final thought, Brother Africa, is, is this. Um, one of the things, you know, I, I, you know, I got an opportunity to talk to, um, to some, 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 some young sisters, you know, who have children. And uh, they were they were visibly upset about the fact that uh, that their uh, their income taxes were were cut in half. Uh, they had anticipated you know, getting a greater amount of money from income tax, in which they could use in terms of the purchasing of cars and other kind of uh, things that they need in terms of taking care of their families. Well, you know, uh, one of the things you know I, I I tried to explain to them, you know, one of the things is that you know the child tax credit was eliminated. And what happened was that the young people in the line with the expectation that child tax credit, because it was on the form, that would be honored. And uh, that, therefore, they calculated into the amount they refund they should be receiving. Well, because they discontinued the child tax credit, there is no, there's no average $300 uh, per child afforded uh, people who filed their taxes. So as a consequence, uh, their refunds came back very, very short. So I sort of explained that to the young to the young ladies, and uh, you know I, I I think for the most part they they, they got it, uh, but nonetheless they were somewhat uh, disenchanted uh, with with you know with, with the way things turned out, and they thought that somehow uh, the whole process was nefarious that they should have known in fact that was going on. I said no, they, they they talked about it. I mean it was it was online. I mean they they talked about it. They're not gonna make it you know so evident. I mean so so blatant that you know. That everybody one gets it, but if you take the opportunity to go online or to read, information is is actually available. Uh, but you have to avail yourself of the uh, of the of, of the opportunity, you know, to to go online and so forth in terms of you know gauging this this kind of information. So uh, so um, hopefully the young ladies will fact uh, learn the lesson, and now they would maybe, you know, do more spend more time in terms of researching things in terms of, you know, enhancing their understanding. In terms of how this economy works, uh, you know. But anyway, having said that, brother Africa, as always, you know, yeah, I encourage the people, you know, to unravel the matrix. Uh, one of the things is, is very, very clear, you know, um, with destruction of the capitalist economy, and we talk about in terms of these sanctions uh, being inflicted upon Russia. The bottom line is that these sanctions are having very little impact on Russia, but they having devastating impact on the economy here in the United States. Uh, President Biden talked about the fact that he anticipated a lot of pain as a result of these sanctions. But what is interesting is that what he what, what, he, what he didn't say was that the pain would be spread evenly. As far as the capitalist class is concerned, 
the people, the people, the, the chemists in the population who do most of the investments, uh, they're doing just well. Um, they're investing in war and they're making tons and tons of money. Whereas the overwhelming number of people who don't have disposable incomes cannot invest or, or afford to buy these kind of stocks, you know, where the returns are astronomical. Uh, so clearly, Brother Africa, the, the bottom line is that the situation for people in society is deteriorating, and uh, we have to understand the nature of the beast and be prepared for whatever. Now, I said that, Brother Africa, you have a good night. And good night to you, Brother Haki. Brother Anthony, talk to us. Certainly. Um, one, uh, uh, let's say a brief announcement. Uh, as uh, Brother Africa indicated earlier, uh, Africa on the move will be working with uh, the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, uh, to bring you a se- uh, several programs throughout the month of May commemorating uh, 64 years of African Liberation Day. And uh, let's see, and uh, uh, please check out our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org, for more information and and, uh, schedule of uh, events. Also, uh, on that same website, you can purchase... Uh, Brother Bob Brown's latest book, We Demand the Full Disclosure and Digitization of All Slavery Era Records, Volumes 1 and 2. You can go to www.a-aprp-gc.org for more information on how to uh, uh, obtain this book either for your use as, or as a graduation gift. It would make a wonderful gift uh, for any uh, for any relatives that you have uh, that are uh, completing uh, their degrees uh, uh, this spring. Also, uh, let's see from my fi- final thought, is we must research our history and also join an organization that is working for people's uh, liberation. One such organization is the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Uh, you can uh, visit our website, or you can call us at 202-246-4896 for more information about our organization about African Liberation Day and uh, other uh, other events. Thank you for having me, Brother Africa, and it's been a very informative program tonight. Thank you, Brother Anthony, for your contributions to today's program. And all our political panelists and analysts, we thank them, as well as the listening audience supporters of Africa on the Move. As a reminder, sign next Sunday. Please check out the website of APRPGC to find the various programs that Africa on the Move will be working with. Um, that particular organization. <laughs>
as we seek to try to move our people farther down the road towards this liberation and unification. We just would like to remind you of the realities that as human beings, without information, you cannot think. And without organization, you cannot think clearly. We encourage every African who loves Mother Africa and love her people to join an organization that is fighting for the liberation of her people as well as humanity. If you are not in the organization, you're acting as if you are the enemy to our people. Unconsciously, we want you to join an organization at the minimum. If you don't join one, at least create one of your own lackings that will serve as a vehicle to help move our people forward and help Mother Africa. Until next time, we will subscribe to go forward with our backwards level and we'll leave you with some music just as a reminder. Africa Liberation Month is coming up next month and we are not free. We'll see you next week. Like a rock.
characterized by mutual respect. Our nation at its best feeds the hungry. Our nation at its worst, at its worst, our nation will have partnership with South Africa. Free, 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 free. Mozambique, about the 
Camelon Quite illegal You're in a Milan Dig out me gold In a Milan Digging out me pearl In a Milan Dig out me diamond We are going fight, 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 fight against the party Fight, fight. 